You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pio Nanabuddy. Today we will be discussing another important Supreme Court case impacting the healthcare industry. And this time, our guest actually participated in the case that was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. That's right. Today we're talking about the risk corridor litigation filed by health insurance issuers who, spoiler alert, ultimately prevailed against the federal government. And joining us for this discussion is our special guest, Steve McBrady. Steve, first of all, thanks for being here. And can you just start us off with some background on what the risk corridors program was and how it fit into the ACA framework? Sure. Thanks, Joe and Pyle. Thanks for having me on to the podcast. So the Affordable Care Act Risk Corridors Program was sort of one of the key components of the Affordable Care Act in general, insofar as it was intended to help the proper functioning of the exchanges. And remember, the exchanges were designed to provide insurance to folks who did not have insurance or were underinsured, didn't get insurance through their employer, for example. And so one of the goals of the Affordable Care Act was to provide insurance to this group of people, but there was very little data on how much it would cost to insure them. And so the Risk Corridors Program was a temporary three-year program that was designed to, on the one hand, prevent the health insurers from losing too much money, and on the other hand, prevent the government from paying too much money. It was designed to provide a temporary mechanism by which the government and the health plans could both get a better understanding of how much it was going to cost to insure this group of people. So for example, the two ways the risk corridor program was supposed to work is that if the health insurers experienced extremely high cost during the three first initial years of the exchanges, if the health care plans experienced extremely high cost, the government would mitigate the health plan's losses to a point. On the other hand, if it ended up being less expensive, the allowable costs were lower, than anticipated in insuring this group of people, the health care plans would have to pay back to the government a portion of their gains. And so in this way, it sort of provided this three-year window for the government and the health plans to get a better understanding of how much it would cost to insure these individuals for whom there was very little data and provide a way that neither the government nor the health plan would obtain a windfall through the functioning of the exchanges in these first three years. So I think we talk about the risk corridors program as one of the three R's, the three premium stabilization programs. And what you're saying makes sense here, that the basic idea is that it's putting a boundary above or below what the rates end up being so that an insurance issue is neither going to have a windfall nor take a bath if they fail to predict the future correctly in the setting of rates. Again, yeah, correct. Especially in those first three years that would permit everybody to sort of gather data as to how much it was going to cost. So in the form of the Affordable Care Act, a federal statute, the federal government makes a promise to health insurance issuers that this program is going to exist and protect them from untoward outcomes and the rates that they're going to set for exchange plans. And I assume the government kept its promise, right? Well, if the government had kept its promise, it would be a much shorter podcast. But it turns out (laughs) the story gets a little bit more interesting. What happened, and this is due to a couple of other events that happened in getting the Affordable Care Act off the ground, which we really don't need to go into to get to the root of the litigation. But the bottom line is, starting from the very first year of the three-year program, the health plan losses were significantly higher than the gain. So in other words, the amount that the health care plans paid in, and there were health plans that did pay in, was significantly dwarfed by the amount that the government was required by the law to pay out. And as Joe, as you alluded to, 
the language in Section 1342 of the Affordable Care Act, which is the section that describes the risk corridors program, said that if the allowable costs are over certain thresholds, the government shall make payments. So there was a shall pay statute, which in government contract parlance is money mandating. That is not a may, that is a shall, meaning that the government is required to make payments. And so what happened is because many more health plans lost money than made money under the formula, the government was required to make payment to mitigate a portion of those losses. The reason we're here talking about it is because at the end of the first year of the program, the government announced that it was not going to make full payment of the amounts owed. And the government published a list of all the health plans that were owed money and the amounts that they were owed. But at the same time, the government announced that they would only be paying 12.6% of the amount that it owed each health plan, which was basically the prorated amount owed to each plan based on the amounts that the government had received. What was the government's basis for only paying 12.6% of the amount it owed? The government had sort of subtly shifted its position to limit the amounts paid out to the amounts taken in, which was not consistent with the language of the statute, but which was sort of became the government's evolving position of how to interpret the risk corridors program. And that went through several iterations. What started out as a discussion with the government whereby the government said, well, it's a three-year program. We'll sort of see how this all comes out after three years and then square up, evolved into a discussion that said, well, the program was supposed to be budget neutral. And so really, we're only ever going to pay out what we receive in. And that really changed the nature of the program because from the health plan standpoint, that really doesn't provide the sort of risk mitigation for the health plans that was contemplated when the risk corridors program was designed. Because if you're only going to ever pay out what you receive in, that's really sort of a one-sided mitigation, and there really is no downside protection for the health plans. All right. So the plans are getting 12.5 cents on the dollar compared to what they were entitled to under the shall pay statute. And then it was time to sue based on the government failing to pay and, and basically interpreting into the law a budget neutrality provision when it's not actually there in the black and white. So what path did the case take through the courts? So because the Affordable Care Act, Section 1342, is a money mandating statute, the jurisdiction for health plans to file suit against the government to seek damages is something called the Tucker Act. Now, the Tucker Act and Tucker Act case law is sort of a backwater within the backwater of government contracts, but the court a relevant jurisdiction for a Tucker Act claim is the Court of Federal Claims, which is right here in Washington, D.C., across Lafayette Park from the White House. And the Court of Federal Claims has jurisdiction over Tucker Act claims, which are claims that arise if there is a constitutional right to payment or payment from a money mandating source of law. And Section 1342 of the Affordable Care Act, the health plans maintained was exactly that, which is a money mandating source of law. The law says shall pay, the government didn't pay, therefore they have a viable Tucker Act lawsuit against the government. And so that was the health plan's argument. Numerous health plans filed suit in the Court of Federal Claims seeking full payment. In other words, the 87.4% that the government didn't pay in that first year, and then added on to file suit for the subsequent two years of the program, in which the government also never made full payment to health plans whose allowable costs were high in those second two years of the Affordable Care Act exchanges. 
So I know there were multiple cases filed by the health plans at the Court of Federal Claims, right? Did the court rule similarly across the cases? The Court of Federal Claims decisions on the various risk corridors cases were filed were split. In some cases, the health plans were successful. In other cases, the government won, and there were cross motions for summary judgment filed and motions to dismiss filed by the government. And all of those cases ultimately fed up to the Federal Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And so the split decisions from the Court of Federal Claims, which included Maine Community Health Options, a case that we litigated, ultimately fed up to the Federal Circuit. And the Federal Circuit heard appeals on four of the ACA risk corridors cases, which it consolidated. After we got through litigating over jurisdiction and were the cases properly at the Court of Federal Claims, because that was a debate at first. There were cases filed in district courts in South Carolina and Iowa and elsewhere. And in those cases, the Department of Justice had argued that there was no jurisdiction to hear a risk corridors case in those courts. Of course, at the same time, when we initially filed at the Court of Federal Claims, the Justice Department argued that there was no jurisdiction to hear risk corridors cases in the Court of Federal Claims either. So that was sort of an interesting dichotomy there. But ultimately, the jurisdictional piece of this went away. And the issue really became two things. The first is, did the shall pay mandate in Section 1342 require the government to make payment? And the reason I say that is because although the Affordable Care Act did say that the government shall pay, it didn't specify a source of appropriations and it didn't, by its text, appropriate money. And so the government argued that Congress, by using the shall pay language but not specifying a source of appropriations, had not actually created an obligation to pay. That was sort of the first issue that the parties were litigating. The second issue, sort of a backup argument of the government, if you will, was even if Section 1342 of the Affordable Care Act had created an obligation to pay, which the government disputed, but even if it had, the government's backup argument was that each year when the Affordable Care Act risk orders payments had become due, Congress had passed appropriations riders restricting HHS, which was the cognizant federal agency, from making payments of risk corridors monies owed from certain HHS accounts. And so what the government argued was that Congress taking those actions effectively, even if there had been an obligation to pay, vitiated the government's obligation to make payments. And so those issues were squarely before the Court of Federal Claims and ultimately went up on appeal after split decisions to the Federal Circuit. And what the Federal Circuit held was on a 3-0 decision that it agreed with the health plan that Section 1342 did create a payment obligation. However, the Federal Circuit agreed with the federal government, two to one, that that obligation had been temporarily suspended by the appropriations riders, which had restricted HHS from making payments. And so there we were, at the Federal Circuit, with this split decision which says on the one hand, there's an obligation to make payments, but on the other hand, HHS couldn't make that payment, and therefore, the money was simply not owed. So that doesn't seem like the ideal ruling for the health plan. Was it a hard decision to decide to petition for cert to the Supreme Court? The health plans really had a decision to make there, which is to petition for certiorari, to the United States Supreme Court, or to sort of take that loss and move on. 
but there was a lot of money at stake. There was approximately $13 billion at stake in the risk corridors cases writ large. And ultimately, the health plans, including our client main community health options, appealed to the Supreme Court. And the two issues before the Supreme Court are the ones we just discussed. First, is there a payment obligation under Section 1342 of the ACA? And second, if there is a payment obligation under Section 1342, was that obligation suspended, impliedly repealed, or otherwise by HHS's inability to make payments? So in December of 2019, the case was argued at the Supreme Court. And at the end of April in 2020, the Supreme Court issued a decision ruling in favor of the health plans, primarily eight to one and in certain respects, six to three. But the thrust of the Supreme Court's decision was the following. First, that section 1342 shall pay language did create a mandatory payment obligation on behalf of the government. And second, that HHS's inability to make payment did not abrogate the federal government's obligation to make payment. In other words, while the government had argued that Congress controls the power of the purse and by not appropriating money to HHS, they had prevented HHS from making payment, the Supreme Court agreed with the health plans that, yes, that is true. HHS cannot make payments with money it doesn't have. But that in and of itself doesn't relieve the United States, which is the defendant in the case, from making payment when there is a mandatory payment obligation to be made. The law had not been repealed the provision requiring the government to make payment had not been repealed, and therefore it stood as an obligation of the United States, and the United States was required to make payment. Has there ever been a case like this before that you're aware of where a money mandating statute had the appropriation stripped as the risk corridors provisions did, and that a court ultimately decided that the United States was still on the hook notwithstanding the absence of appropriations, or was this a first time? So there is very little case law on these types of money mandating cases. And if you look at the cases cited in the Court of Federal Claims and Federal Circuit and Supreme Court briefs, we had to dip way back into the case law, going back to cases from the mid 1800s to examine the state of the case law when there is a money mandate. And there were pay cases from ambassadors that were owed money, $5,000 here and there, and cases with really intricate and unique fact patterns over the last 150 years. There was no case that was squarely on point with our case, but the weight of the case law we always felt was on our side. And we also thought that this was a clear case of everybody understanding what the rules of the game were when it started, and then the government having a change of heart partway through, and rather than repealing or amending the law, after the fact, trying to affect a change which had a really negative consequence on the industry. And so in that regard, in addition to always thinking we had the correct legal argument, here we felt like we had the right argument in so many equitable ways as well. So it sounds like this is a potentially, I mean, obviously any case is consequential to the parties in the case, but this is potentially consequential from the perspective of establishing a precedent on these issues. Yeah, I think it does establish a really important precedent in that it really solidifies and clarifies in money mandating statute jurisprudence that when the government makes a promise, that promise means something. And when the government makes a promise that induces a party to act and the party performs its side of the obligation, the government is also going to be required to perform 
its side of the obligation. And that's really what it came down to in the risk corridors cases. So practically speaking, what was the next step for the health plans after the Supreme Court decided that the U.S. still had an obligation to pay under Section 1342, especially given that the Anti-Deficiency Act prevents federal agencies from making payments when funds haven't been appropriated by Congress? That's a great question. So in a lawsuit like this against the United States government seeking statutory payment, once there's a judgment awarded, the case actually goes back down to the lower court, back down to the Court of Federal Claims, so that the government and the health plans can process payment through the Treasury Department and a portion of the Treasury Department called the Judgment Fund, which is a fund that is actually a permanent standing appropriation that pays judgments or settlements entered into by the United States. In our view, because Congress controls the power of the purse, if Congress makes a law and the law says shall pay, the statutory payment mandate, that's a binding mandate on the United States. To us, it was a totally separate issue whether Congress had given HHS the money. HHS is an executive branch agency. The Anti-Deficiency Act is focused on not letting executive branch agencies spend money they don't have. But the Anti-Deficiency Act doesn't control Congress. It doesn't restrict Congress's ability to make promises and be required to make good on those promises. And so the issue of HHS not having the money to make payment to us was not the key legal issue in the case because it was Congress that made the promise and it was Congress in its role with the power of the purse that had to make good on that obligation, either by giving the money to HHS to make payments or otherwise. To answer your question about where the money comes from to make payment in a case like this. Again, this could have gone two ways. Congress could have appropriated the money to HHS and HHS could have made payment. Or in the case where you get a judgment against the government or where there's a settlement against the government, there's actually a standing appropriation called the judgment fund within the Treasury Department that pays settlements and judgments against the United States. That was actually designed probably 50 years ago to prevent agencies from having to go to the government over and over again to receive payment when there were judgments against them. Instead, this acts as an expedient for the government that when you get a judgment, for example, from the Court of Federal Claims, you can work with the cognizant government agency, the Department of Justice, to file paperwork with the judgment fund to receive payment. So that is where the appropriated funds come from. They come from the judgment fund, which is a standing permanent appropriation to pay judgments and settlements against the United States. To close things out, this is not the first or last or by any means the only litigation coming from the Affordable Care Act. Can you kind of put this in the broader context? It would be easy to have ACA litigation fatigue from all the many cases that have come from the ACA. Where does this fit into the broader tapestry of cases involving the ACA? And does this decision have implications on some of the other lawsuits that are still winding their way through the courts? So it's a good question, Joe. I do think that in many respects, the Affordable Care Act risk corridors cases stand by themselves in the following way. The risk corridors cases were really not about the policy of the ACA. They were not about the constitutionality of the ACA. They were not about individual mandates and other aspects of the ACA that have been litigated. The Affordable Care Act risk corridors case was really much more like a typical contract case. Again, it was a statutory case. There were obviously arguments as to whether or not there was an implied contract between the government and the health plans. But the gravamen of the risk corridors cases 
was really a deal between the federal government on the one hand and health insurers around the country on the other hand. And the deal was this. If we're going to stand up these exchanges, again, the federal and state exchanges, and provide insurance to an entire population of folks who had never had insurance or who had been underinsured, we're going to need to partner with the private sector. And in order to partner with the private sector, who don't have the ability to take unlimited chances, we're going to need to do a couple of things. And one of the things that they decided to do was to make sure neither the government nor the health plans would suffer a windfall in the event that the markets functioned in a way that nobody anticipated. So they created this three-year temporary program designed to prevent that. And the reason I say the risk orders program is different than many other components of the ACA and many of the other constitutional aspects of the ACA that didn't litigate is this was really a case about the federal government breaking a deal with private sector companies. And we as citizens all benefit from the federal government being a good partner to the private sector. Why? Because when companies can trust that in their dealings with the government, the government's going to deal with them fairly, that benefits everybody. Benefits everybody because it entices companies to do business with the government. It benefits because companies don't need to hedge more risk than they normally would because the government is a reliable partner. So the whole system functions better when private sector companies are encouraged to enter into deals with the government to provide services that are needed by the citizens and can rely on the government to live up to its end of the bargain. Thanks very much for being with us today, and congratulations to you on a job very well done, and not just a good outcome for the client, and a fundamentally fair outcome based on what is in the Affordable Care Act and the promise that was made by the government. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Pyle. Thanks for having me. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.